EMI. EMI, my friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you just say? Oh my god. Oh man. Oh my god. Too far, crazy. Goddamn, run. We are vibing. Get it, girl. What? Hello, friends. Welcome to the TMI podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Grant, and will the real Slim Shady please stand up? God, what is wrong with me? These intros just keep getting worse. That was honestly the first thing that came into my head and I just fucking said it. (sighs) But it's over now, so... Let's just do a wide berth around what just happened and keep moving forward somehow because I am bloody excited to introduce you to my guest today. I had a very deep and life-altering chat with Adrian Atchison. Adrian, or Acho as we call him, is a very dear friend of mine and my family. He grew up with my big brother, Matthew. And Adrian has a remarkable story to tell. He survived the 2002 Bali bombings, which was carried out by terrorist organization Jamaa Islamiyah. And this event, still to this day, represents the single largest loss of Australian life due to an act of terror. So in other words, big shit went down and Adrian survived to tell his story. And until he sat down with me, he hadn't actually spoken this deeply and this publicly about his story. So it was an incredible privilege for me to hold space for him to share this with us. My brother Matthew is also a Bali survivor and you'll hear all about the special connection between him and Adrian throughout the episode. Now, we need to have some backstory before we get cracking on this one because it's personal and there are a lot of personal tidbits scattered throughout. So super quick, here we go. I grew up in a pub in a small country town called Forbes. The The pub was called the Post Office Hotel, the Postie for short, and my parents bought the pub when I was about one, I think, and... We lived there for about 22 or 23 years or something like that with my parents and my big brother, who is 13 years older than me, and my younger sister, who is 15 months younger than me. And we grew up around a lot of chaos. It was absolutely fabulous. I loved growing up in Forbes, in the country and in the pub. It's been a huge part of my identity and what makes me who I am today. And of course, it really does go without saying, it was also incredibly dysfunctional at times, but you know, that my friends is the beauty of life and a story for another day. Anyway, my brother's friends all refer to him as Moo, which is short for Maddie Moo. And because I was so similar to my brother growing up, they started calling me Little Moo and it stuck. So you'll hear Acho refer to me as Little Moo a lot. So get on board because it's super cute. And really, I guess this episode is for all the people who were there at that moment in time. It was a time of 
significant trauma for our small town, Forbes, and for Australia as a whole. So as we go through this trauma time capsule, I just invite you to listen with your whole heart and send love to all the souls that were affected by it. And another thing, Acho is a true country boy. He's got that delightful Aussie country drawl when he talks. So I hope all my precious international listeners can understand us. We do use lots of Aussie slang and nicknames for people. So best wishes and warmest regards to you all. Turn on the closed captions if you need to, I guess. And a surprise to no one, I fucked up the audio again. (laughs) But I finally figured out what I've been doing wrong. I have been forgetting to record into my microphone because I am, in fact, a literal idiot. (laughs) Oh, please, someone help me. And Acho has the world's squeakiest chair. So that's in there. And let's all just agree that all of these are fuck ups add to the charm of the show. And like I always say, we are not aiming for perfection over here. Obviously, there is a big trigger warning for today. This episode goes very deep into the story of a survivor of severe trauma. Adrian goes into great detail about his physical injuries, and he gives us a detailed account of what happened during the explosion, after the explosion, and into his recovery journey. In all seriousness, if any of this might cause stress for you, please use your best judgment and maybe skip this episode. And remember, this is a safe and inclusive space for curious people who aren't afraid of the big conversations. Shame and judgment are not welcome here, friends. Oversharing is the best kind of sharing. And here on Planet Sarah Grant, we honour the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Hello, Big Moo, my brother from another mother. Hello, Little Moo. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on the show. I'm a bit nervous. Are you? I'm excited to be here. I'm yeah, really excited to see where this goes and just happy to be here and share some time with you. Oh, me too. Thank you. And I have to apologise in advance because, well, to you and our listeners, because there's some delightful construction work going on and it's a constant noise negotiation. <laughs> And they've decided to start the jackhammering right now. (laughs) (laughs) Timing is everything, but I'm sure it's nothing you can't handle, little move. Oh, yes, that's true. Thanks. Thanks for the vote of confidence. Okay, so I thought we could start with learning a little bit about you and who you are and how we know each other. Let's give the people some good old-fashioned context. Let's go back. How far are we going back? Way back. Way back. And we go a little something like this. Hit it. I grew up in Forbes, young country boy, small town. So we pretty much knew everyone. So Mm. I grew up at the high school, loved my soccer and cricket and always came up against these really good Chester the Chick soccer sides and cricket sides, Matty Grant and Nick Field. So they used to routinely kick our ass. (laughs) And being on the receiving end of a lot of... um, a lot of hammerings from Maddie and Nick. I got to know them pretty well, so grew up knowing them. And as fate would have it, we started playing footy together. 
as we started to get a bit older, we started going into the pubs together. So your family had the the Posty yep. Post Office Hotel in Forbes, the number one place to go back in the day. Oof, amen, you're preaching. Yes. So as we got a little bit older and started getting into there, we'd be in there drinking and then the, the pub would shut and then Mick would be upstairs and we'd be downstairs with music pumping and drinking <laughs> after all hours and then we'd hear the, the stairs start to creak and go, oh, bloody hell, he's coming down. Those were the and, days. We used to the, be able to pour our own beers. All the lights would be on, the music would be on and we'd be ducking down behind the bar. <laughs> Idiots. Oh, my God. That's a really good impression of Dad. You've nailed that. <laughs> I've heard it a few times, little move. Yes. Um, oh. So gr- grew up knowing you. You're always there. Love seeing you. Just a beautiful smiling face mm-hmm. and just good people to be around. I always find it really hard to explain to people from the city what it's like to grow up in the country with country folks because it's like a, a massive family, really, isn't it? And there's dysfunction in it all and there's love. We just grow up in each other's back pockets, really. It, it really is. It's it's so tight-knit and I'm sure we'll touch on the story evolves around Bali, but the generosity of the Forbes community is unrivaled. It's mm. exceptional and it will always be my home and I'll be always forever grateful mm. to the love and support I got at that time. But it's a real care factor. It's a real, I guess, people are just so generous with their time, their emotions, and they invest in other people, which I find you don't get that in a bigger centre. If you talk Sydney, you know, you say hello to someone or smile at them, they grab their pockets and think that you're going to try and rob them or, know, or steal something from them. Yeah. So it's just a beautiful place where, you know, people care. You You get that dysfunction. As every family has, that black shape of the family or things go wrong. Yeah. But there's people around you to give you that love and support when you need it. So mm. that's what I love about it. Yes, it definitely makes you who you are. It does. It's it's shaped me. Yep. Yeah, it definitely. And me as well. So there we go, folks. That's a history lesson on our relationship and our upbringing. We are two Forbes country souls. <laughs> yeah, Forbes 101. 2871 for that. <laughs> <laughs> And you're here today because you are a regular human who experienced and survived a severe trauma. I wondered if you might, yeah, share about your journey. Little move. So going on into those footy days, we're having the time of our lives. We were young, thought we were invincible, 10 foot tall and bulletproof and we're playing footy and someone decided to have an end of season rugby trip over to Bali. So naturally, I said yes in a heartbeat. That sounded pretty cool to me at the time. <laughs> so we signed up for that. And one thing, yeah, we're down at the Bowley having a few drinks, jumping on a bus. I think it was a Friday night. We drank all the way down to Sydney. We got to Sydney. We drank. Some people went to bed. Some didn't. We jumped on a plane at 6 a.m. or whatever the next morning off to Bali. Some people bought their duty-free bottles on the plane. We drank some more. <laughs> We got over to Bali and coming off the plane, I just remember as the doors opening, you, know, you step down onto the, onto the gangplank or down the stairs, just the oppressive humidity and the heat. And I went, oh, mm. holy moly, this is going to be good drinking weather. So, <laughs> Sweat rash. Sweat rash. So we roll on into our hotel and one of the guys, Crowy, had the idea, he said, you know, don't take any clothes over there. We'll buy all our kit over there, all our wardrobe over there, 
going to be so much fun. He had this great idea. We're going to have a worst dress Wednesday. <laughs> so it was all happening. So we got to the motel. We checked in. A few people in the pool having a few bing tangs. Mm. And we said, right, let's get downtown. We've got to go and buy some kit for that night. So it was our first night in town. So we got down there and people started dispersing, as you do, going everywhere. And yeah. I think uh, Maddie, your brother, went and got some dreadlocks put in. He oh. went and got his hair braided. Yeah. Because he's a bit of a cool, bit of a cool cat. I'm sure he was one of the guys that um, didn't go to bed for that, you know, those few days prior on the journey. <laughs> Maddie was always the life of the party, always trying to get people upbeat and interesting and doing little, little sounds. <laughs> now you little move. <laughs> <laughs> we had many a acapella weird beatboxing sessions. Oh, yeah. Always. That was a regular thing with Maddie. So I was in there haggling over my outfit and I was buying a shirt and uh, one of the guys said to me, I think it was Big Crane or someone said to me, said, don't buy a shirt. It's hot, you idiot. Get a singlet. And I went, oh, good idea. I went, what a masterstroke. I said, you know, it'll keep me cool and I'll be able to get the guns out as well. So <laughs> bought my bought my um, regulation Bing Tang singlet or whatever I bought at the oh time. Oh, my God, and it is the regulation uniform. That was it. That's going out kit over there. So... Mm. Back we went to the motel, those of us could find, we regathered and we headed off into town. So we got told the Sari Club was the place to go. So we rocked on in there and it was happening. It was a great vibe. It was party atmosphere. So I remember walking in like they sort of, you know, channeling you through the front doors, but it's almost like a confine or a big three-metre wall. So, you know, we sort of found out that was to keep the local pickpockets out yeah. In we went, and it was just a great time. Yeah, they had sort of 80s music on, a bit of Guns N' Roses, ticking a lot of my boxes. And... Oh, they were just catering to the bogans in Australia. Exactly, yep. They, <laughs> they knew their target audience. Yeah, the number one clientele, <laughs> footy boys from Australia. <laughs> so we're in there drinking, playing up, crowing, or having bets on what song would come on next, and just having a great time and the dynamic of the club was sort of down the back they had a big screen a disco sort of dance floor and we moved away from that we sort of moved towards the front of the club for a while and yeah. we had a little table there and we just tried to find a inverted commas a quiet area in the club to talk so mm. we we're there having a great time you know just reminiscing excited about the trip what was going to happen and then we decided it was sort of time to head back into the party area back with the rest of the boys so there are a few young ladies there. We actually gave our table to those ladies Aww. and we moved in to, yeah, very chivalrous. Very. Yeah. So we moved down, back down to the boys and I don't remember how long it was, but I remember hearing the um, the first bomb. There was a suicide bomber wearing a um, suicide vest up in Paddy's Bar up the road a bit. Oh. And apparently, I only know this now, but he detonated that and I heard that and I didn't think much of it at the time. I just thought it was a cracker. Someone let off a cracker in the club. But I remember seeing all the drinks waiters sort of jumping and freaking out. And I didn't think much of it. And then, I don't know, it couldn't have been much later. But I just remember hearing the loudest noise you could ever imagine. And then it was like sort of almost like slow motion seeing sort of flames roll towards me. And then just getting hit by this incredible, it just felt like a sound and a heat in my face. Wow. And I just remember, you know, just shutting my eyes and clenching my fists and just screaming and and just trying to process that and just trying to work out 
what had happened and mm. all I could think was somebody had thrown a cracker in my face and had gone off, you know, right in front of me. Yeah, wow. All I could think was I was the only one, you know, it happened to me and right in front of me and I was the only one hurt. And I just remember screaming. Then the next thing I can remember is hearing a voice going, get out, get out. And sort of, you know, sort of started to come to and trying to pull myself together. And that's when I realized I was on the ground and it was a bit of a bamboo structure. The whole place was sort of concrete walls, but then inside everything was bamboo. Oh, goodness. So everything was on fire. It really was. So I remember sort of pushing this bit of a structure off me and then looking around and just seeing flames everywhere. Mm. From then, you know, it was just panic, sheer panic and pandemonium inside there. So... I remember getting up and then sort of looking around and trying to get my bearings and work out where am I going to go? How am I going to get out of here? Mm. What have I got to do? So I remember running over towards the wall away from the fire or from that heat. Yeah. And getting over there. And again, you know, the way the place was structured, it kept the pickpockets out. But what it did was keep so many people in there. So mm. having this sort of three meter wall around there. Yes. Um, absolutely increasing out know, the death toll immeasurably so got over to there i was fortunate enough there was a big pile of rubble sort of there that i was able to clamber up and jump onto and, and you're tall getting, as well sorry to interrupt you're, you're pretty, tall pretty tall um t- taller than most so yeah. yeah that definitely i guess helped and i remember getting up to the this pile of rubble and sort of getting up and looking at the wall and it, it was a surreal moment it was almost just people there just clamoring over each other. It was almost like rats off a sinking ship, just mm. clawing, you know, scratching, trying to get out. Yeah. And I remember sort of standing there and pausing for a moment and going, what's going on? And I sort of waited or tried to wait for a bit of a blank spot or a space in the wall to jump. And that sort of came along. And then I remember jumping across and leaping at the wall and grabbing with both arms. And then my right arm just sort of flopped down. Um, it didn't work. So I just was clinging on with one ear with my left hand. Wow. And I mean, literally clinging and I can remember, you know, looking down or going, if I don't get over this wall now, that will be the end of me. I I will die in here. Mm. So I managed to claw myself up to the top of the wall, got on top of the wall and stood on top of the wall. And then another surreal moment, like ready to jump over into the building next door. And I remember looking at it and it was just like a timber frame roof. And I'm going, even at that time, like the way my stupid mind works, I'm going, why is there a half-built house in the middle of Bali? <laughs> Little did I know all the tiles have been blown off this place. Yeah. You, I guess you had no awareness or concept of actually what had happened. No, abs- absolutely none. No. So your reality was not was not a reality? It wasn't a reality. It, it was sheer instinct then. It was sheer survival mode then. Mm. And then, you know, no idea what had happened, that sort of thing. So, Do you remember the thoughts that you had or were you looking for people you know? or No, no? purely survival. Mm. I don't know how long I was passed out or knocked out for, but by the time I came to, the fire was just everywhere. The heat was so intense. Mm. It was purely survival. It was just, you know, adrenaline and get out, fight or flight, literally in that moment. Okay. That was, for me, yeah, that's how close it came. Just, yeah, you just had to go. You were in the thick of it. In the thick of it. So we jumped over onto the roof next door and then got round to the other side and down on the ground were a few of the Forbes boys, a few of the guys from our touring party down there sort of catching people and trying to help them down. And 
there was a girl in front of me. I remember she wouldn't jump down, so I gave her a little gentle nudge in the right direction and well, pushed you. her down into Howie and a few of the boys' arms and, you know, yeah. they're helping people. And then, um, you know, it was my turn to sort of jump down and I remember jumping down into the boys and I remember I could start to feel I was pretty sore then mm. and I tried to lower myself a little bit or whatever and I, I just sort of jumped and the boys said they went to catch me and they've hit my calves or whatever and skin's just come off in their hands. Oh, God. So I didn't know at the time, but it was just the sheer heat yeah. had, I basically sort of started cooking me, if you will. So yeah. it wasn't direct contact with fire. It was just the radiant heat, just the sheer heat. So, oh, you know, God. when you get too close to a campfire and you sit there for a while and then all of a sudden you just go, woo, 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 yeah. that's hot. <laughs> yes. So you're... Your skin came off into the boy's hands. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, just off my calves. And again, I don't remember any of that. And mm. then we got down there and then there was a bit of a posse or we had a bit of our entourage sort of gathering there and we we're trying to get there. And they, I remember they were there and a few of the boys were going, yeah, we've got to wait here. We've got to get here. And I didn't know what was wrong with me, but I knew I was pretty hurt. So I said, mm. I said, fuck that. I'm going to hospital. <laughs> and and I proceeded to. And I proceeded to walk up the street. Oh, that's good. I'm going to get some betadine. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Couple of band-aids, a few penadols, I'll be good. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Okay. Yep. So off I went and for whatever reason, just because he's a champion, your brother, Matty Grant, Matty the Moo Grant, came with me. So he came with me and if he didn't, I swear to this day, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So off we went up the street and we're walking along and that's when people are going, you know, what happened? Everyone's trying to process, you know, what what just happened and there's mm. still fire, there's blown out cars, there's glass everywhere, there's people so badly hurt. It was just crazy scenes. Mm. And I remember sort of walking, I was walking pretty gingerly. You know, there's a little bit of footage, I think, back on 60 Minutes or something, you know, with Maddie and I walking up the street. And yes. I'm sort of walking on like a robot man. It's whisper on. Maddie's sort of walking along next to me going, what do you want me to do, Moo? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that footage. Um, and, yeah, you met with the dreadlocks. And you had a bloody eye, Yeah, I think. Yeah, so I ended up losing sight i had sort of shrapnel in one eye and a cut over the other and they both ended up closing up so yeah i was totally relying on maddie yeah. to get me around i couldn't see couldn't do anything mm. and he was just taking me around so mate we're walking along he went and banged on shops he's going what do you want me to do i said i need some water and so he's banging on shops and they were just you know shutting shop they're pulling down their rollers no one wanted to do anything oh, and wow. we're walking along and then i came across i don't even know what it was like a park or something and there was a fountain in there mm. and i was going to go and lay down and i just wanted to cool i just wanted to go and lay down in there and maddie's going no you can't you can't and to this day if i'd have gone and laid down in that fountain the infection would have killed me so you know with burns infections one of the the, the key causes of death or complications so that in its own right would have been a problem. But over in Bali, the quality of the water is terrible. Like they mm -hmm. won't even let you brush your teeth with the water that comes out of the tap. So wow. let alone someone like me, you know, in my condition, laying down in a fountain in a park. <laughs> I can only imagine what that water would have been like. I mean, that is sepsis. That's just sepsis water or whatever they it call is, it. It is, yeah. So to this day, that's, again, you know, just another pivotal moment. I still 
tell Maddie all the time whenever I catch up. I credit him with saving my life. So thanks, brother. Well, thanks, brother. Makes me very, um, got a bit of a frog in the throat. Bit of a frog. Bit of a frog, yeah. So anyway, off we went, off we went. We ended up in a taxi or something and, mm. you know, it's hard enough getting around Bali in a normal night, let alone with something like that happening. So we couldn't get anywhere and we're driving along and we pulled up somewhere and tried to get in the hospital and by then, you know, the adrenaline was probably starting to wear off and the pain was kicking in and mm. to move was agony. And I remember sitting there, he's going, right, we've got to get out here and then we got out there and they wouldn't take us. So we got back into the car and. I remember trying to fold me up or get back, back into the car and I was screaming and carrying it on and yeah. we're in the car off to the next hospital or wherever we were and I said, Maddie, what's wrong with me? He said, oh, he said, you got a few burns and that and, and then he's gone, oh, and you've got a bit of a hole in your arm. He's gone, oh, son, oh, son, oh, no. <laughs> Maddie, you could put a little bit of air in my tires or try and pump me up a little bit. He's going, oh, son. Oh, it's fucked. So <laughs> in that moment, I imagine he had no filter. No filter. So I ended up with my right arm. I don't know what hit it, but it broke in about 15 places. Ended up with a compound fracture in that. So again, yeah, when I went to jump over onto the wall out of the club, that's why my right arm sort of gave way. Oh, because it wasn't um, working. That's right. It wasn't. Yeah. So compound fracture there and then that sort of thing. We ended up in an army hospital out the road, Little Moo. Mm -hmm. They got me into somewhere they, on a stretcher. I remember just being in a corridor. The boys know better than me, but just how surreal it was and the injuries people had was, was horrific, nothing short of that. And, did it feel you know, like a wartime scenario? I think it, it really did. You know, you talk to the other boys, yes, that's what they say. Talk to Maddie and he says, you know, people coming in, Again, probably that lack of clothing. People coming in with just skin ripped off or peeling away. Just just horrible stuff. So mm. I remember being out there and they had me on a bit of a stretcher and they put these two paddles down my arm and a bit of a bandage around there and I think there was like a pube hanging off it. It was just <laughs> oh my God. It wasn't very sanitary out there. Very hygienic. A pube. A pube in your burns. Yes, and the boys had my arm sort of holding it up or trying to keep it still and they were getting tired and they'd start to fall asleep, my arm would drop and oh. I'd scream out and someone else would come in and have their turn. So did they give you any morphine or anything or they didn't have that capacity? No, nothing, nothing then. So no, and I remember the boys are trying to get someone to come and see me, but again, yeah, it was chaos. They were overrun. So yeah. no hospital system could cater for anything like that, let alone over there where they're challenged as it is. So I don't know where we end up, but it was an army hospital apparently out the road somewhere. Mm. Um, ended up, you know, getting someone to see me. I remember, you know, they had my arm and they wanted me to turn it over. They said, oh, we need to see if broken. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, it's fucking broken. It's absolutely broken. <laughs> In my professional opinion. It hurts a lot and I can't move it. Please help. <laughs> they were obviously as well overwhelmed. And there's a bone hanging out of it. So, oh, is that what the hole in your arm was? Mm, yeah, okay. that's, a, that's a compound fracture. So when that sort of bone splinters or whatever and obviously protrudes through the skin. Yeah. And and what about the burns? Can you just talk us through the burns? The burns were incredible. Again, you know, so it wasn't enough to burn through the nerve ending. It was just that pain and I could feel everything. So burns are pretty much up there with probably the worst injuries you can have. Yes. 
and again, it's if you have a look at me from the back, it's only from the back and it's only my two calves mm. and the back of my neck and then sort of my shoulders and down my arms. I've got like a singlet shape on the back of my back. So that flimsy little bing tang singlet was enough to protect me from the radiant heat. So again, it was just the radiant heat that burned me, nothing, no direct contact or anything yeah. like that. Wow, you'll always be wearing a bintang singlet. I'm so sorry. Always, I've got my permanent barley singlet on. Forever. So sorry about that. <laughs> it is what it is. So you you got to the army hospital, and then what happened? Do you remember? Next thing I remember is sort of waking up in my room. I was on a drip. There was someone else across in the room, and I remember waking up and then screaming out, going "Nurse, nurse!" Mm. No one came, and then. I remember I really needed to go to the toilet and I tried to get up and then, you know, I tried to sort of start walking off and then I got a bit away and got dragged back and that's when I realised I had the IV. So oh. I'm trying to, I was trying to drag like the IV and ended up being sort of attached to a bed. So I'm trying to drag this bed and I made it to like a basin just near my bed and um, I literally just pissed in there and then went and laid back down on the bed and um that was about the last thing I, I sort of remember then i remember waking up in the morning and there was some sort of food i was like oh, i probably should try and eat something yeah so I had about two mouthfuls of that and then just spewed all that up yeah yeah, yeah. they'd put a big car sort of down my right arm and then i was just sort of laying there in pain then the next thing i remember is australian medical staff coming in so basically back in those times back in bali we were almost at war with indonesia Oh, so yeah. when this happened, they rounded up all the medi medical staff, put them on Hercules planes, and started flying them over there to come and you know try and I guess you know give us assistance and try and help out mm. where they could. But because they were Hercules planes or army planes, the Indonesian government weren't going to let them land. Oh. So I've heard the story. You know, the pilot said, "You can go and get fucked. We're bringing in, shoot us down if you want." So yeah. again, just that Aussie spirit coming through. You know, they've come in obviously on mass dispersed and started giving out help so these guys came in they've had a look at me started giving me some help and then one of the things with burns whenever you get burns you start to swell up and get really big and puffy so they had to cut the cast off my arm and i remember them trying to dig in with their scissors or whatever they had and it was more back to the screaming because it was so tight they couldn't get the scissors in there and they're trying to jam it in there, and then I'll scream. They're going, mate, we've got to get this off. Please, Lord, help. <laughs> Please, Lord, help. Please, Lord, oh, help. I, pray- I prayed many times, little moo. <laughs> mm, I bet you did. I, and you're not overly religious, are you? Oh, yes. Yeah, I am. You are? Definitely. Oh, you are? I, yep. Yeah. Okay. And it, was that a new thing that happened after Bali, or I can't remember? If- oh, look, no, I guess I've always believed in God, so... Mm. You know, even as a young person, I did. I went to a Christian school, but that maybe probably at the end maybe pushed me a little bit away or yeah. wasn't in tune. And then, you know, if you'd have seen the life I lived, you'd probably be rightly thinking, going, hey, he's not very religious. <laughs> <laughs> no, religion comes in many forms. Spirituality is where it's at, I think. It is. But do you think that your faith maybe helped push you through? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And, and I did pray and then. There were times when I doubted and questioned, as we all do, going, why this isn't fair? Mm. But who knows what is God's will? And 
why things happen. Yeah. But I guess they shape who we are now and what we do with our lives. So when you were taken out, you got taken out separately to the other boys into a, a different country. Is that, am I remembering that correctly? The medical team got us out to the airport and then I remember being on the tarmac and they had, we we're just laying down on stretches, you know, I don't mm. know how many, there would have been hundreds of us out there and it was just like a big string line over the top and I could see a few from where I was, but, and there were just drips and IVs and stuff hanging down from this string line and everybody to everybody's stretcher or whatever they needed. And that was a pretty dark time. That was a dark time, but also a good time. That was probably the first time that I knew I was going to get out of this alive and that I was going home. So I remember there was a, a girl there, a blonde girl, Tamara. Mum used to write to her. She's lovely. If you ever listen to this, Tamara, thank you so much. But Tamara, we love you. She was a blonde, you. blonde, blonde, blue-eyed girl. I remember looking up going, wow, you're an angel. <laughs> so they must have had me on the good gear by then. Yes. <laughs> Probably on the morphine. Maybe she was your angel, you know. you had. She was. I, t- I still tell her that. Yeah. Um, you had Matt. He got you some of the way. Yes. And then you yep. had um, Tamara. Yep. Tamara. And she's going, yeah, what can I do? I said, can you just call my mum and tell her I'm all right? Mm-hmm. So she did. And then mum and her struck up a wonderful relationship. It was lovely. They got us on the plane. I flew back to Darwin. We were going to go to WA. It filled up pretty quick. So I ended up in Darwin. I think I had a couple of procedures or operations there overnight. Then they put me on a plane and flew me to North Shore. Back in Sydney. And then that was the first time I remember, I think we landed out at Windsor or out at the army base out there and yeah. then the ambulance into town and remember the ambulance doors opening up at uh, Royal North Shore and there was the family. So, you know, that was the first time I'd seen them. So, you know, that was great. That was amazing to feel like, you know, I was back home or back with the loved ones. Yes, you're just on home. You're somewhere familiar. It was. Yeah. It was beautiful. So, yeah. Then going, hey, finally going to you know, get some really good care and modern medicine. And remember going inside, and the first thing the doctors did was do a digital probe, stick a finger straight up my rectum. <laughs> Why? <laughs> That's what I thought. That's what puzzled me again. One of those. I'm going. I've, I've been through enough. Surely, surely medicine has advanced further than they've got to probe me. <laughs> well, I, I really do wonder if there's any doctors out there listening, what the actual fuck. He's been through enough. Why do you need to poke in his bum hole? <laughs> Apparently it's something about the reflection or um, can the anus sort of close or open? I don't know. Something I did ask it. the same question a little more. <laughs> I mean, it is a pretty special place. It does a lot for us. <laughs> I just don't I know. Just, they could have given I wasn't you some... expecting that. <laughs> Surprise. So, yeah, then went through, I don't know, countless operations. So... They had to go and basically debraze or go and pick all the shit out of the wounds. Oh, okay. So that was that was horrific. Like I remember I was on the morphine then, had my little PDA so I could punch, 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 and they'd yeah. load me up on that. But then they'd take me down into this little bath and basically try and bath me and pick it all out. And, you know, I remember Janelle saying that, that was horrible. She could hear me screaming out from down the hall. Oh, oh my goodness. So that was, again, you know, just going through those dark times or hard times. 
And when you say they had to pick the shit out, was that the shrapnel that was inside the bombs? Yeah, pretty much. So going back, what they did was the van they blew up out the front of the Surrey Club, obviously with the explosives, but they filled it with nails and bolts and nuts. If they couldn't kill, they were out to maim. Mm. So part of that and part of whatever was in the club, the dirt, the bamboo, whatever, you know, got picked up and thrown around. So mm. when I was over in the army hospital out the road there, I think it was Randall sort of stroking my hair or whatever, and he was rubbing my hair and then found a nail sort of hanging out the top of my head or whatever. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I remember so, that Matt had – he was pretty lucky with his injuries, but he had quite bad shrapnel. I remember yeah, that. a lot of the boys did, mm. yeah. And ears. Were your ears damaged? Yeah, so both eardrums were blown out just by the, the ferocity of the uh, the explosion. Yeah. And the right one still hasn't healed up. A couple of years later, I had a procedure, uh, I think it was a right endural myringioplasty, where they basically try and fold the, the skin of the eardrum over the hole, mm. but they weren't able to heal that or it still hasn't healed. So you know, I can sort of hold my nose and go to blow air and air comes out in my ear. So. so does that mean you can't hear? Not as well, definitely not. So I'm okay talking to you one-on-one's fine or whenever I'm in a crowded room or where there's that background noise, it's very hard for me to hear or I've got to focus intently on that conversation and then some things, I guess a little thing, few things get lost. So obviously hearing decline will be something I'll have to deal with or live with later in life, but hey, I'm still here. Yes, and also technology's advanced so much in that area. You know, you'll be able to get some aids. Technology has more use of it, hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess just finishing off, Royal North Shore, so I don't know, went through so many blood transfusions, you know, those skin abrasions where they got me to the stage where they could give me skin grafts mm. to my burn sites. So that basically involved, it's almost... I guess akin to a potato peeler or a veggie peeler. Yeah. And they go and scrape my hamstrings and get laser skin off and then go and fold that over the burn sites and roll that in. And then they get almost like a little prickly thing and stretch it out and push it over there. So they did that. And then I had something like 96% of my skin grafts take, which is an unbelievably, incredibly high number apparently. So... Really, really good result, great result. So You were meant to live, my friend. I think that's pretty Meant cool. to live for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> was your brother over there as well? Yes, my brother Andrew was over there, so he was on the Tory party. He was actually up in Paddy's Bar where the first suicide bomber was. So, so you were separated few of the boys had split it off and I think he and Gimpy went up there and yeah. they were up there probably doing what they do best and probably chatting to some of the the local women or Yeah, the beautiful gals. The beautiful gals or the beautiful ladies. And was he injured? Uh he was probably similar to Maddie, I guess. Everyone had their injuries, but they probably pale into insignificance, you know, with some of the other injuries and then Obviously, losing the three boys over there. Mm. So, again, the Aussie spirit, yeah, you don't talk about that. You focus on others. Yes. Yeah, that's so true, and especially for country country people. You know, that's a real – that's kind of ingrained in us when we come out of the womb. It is. We're hoping to change that today by talking about all of this. So the three boys that didn't come home, I wonder 
Can you tell us a little bit about who they were and when did you find out that there were three soldiers that didn't make it home? So that was Crowy, Sando and Ritz. So they were three champion guys and the old saying, only the good die young. Mm. It just didn't seem right. It was it was horrible taking before their time. Mm. You know, we're young guys having the time of our lives and for something like that to be thrust upon us and then to find out that, you know, three of your mates have been killed um, was devastating. Yeah. Absolutely gut-wrenching and soul-destroying. Were they all in the Sari Club? I think so, little Moo. Yeah. Um, again, you know, it gets a bit fractured probably by the volume of alcohol we drink and yeah. historics. And also trauma. Trauma obviously yep. does things to your brain. And, and It does. There were lots of lots of you over there, so, you know, I imagine you've pieced a bit together by talking to each other. Yep. Were you still in Bali when you found out that they didn't make it or had you gone on your plane journey at that point? <sighs> I think I was back home. I'm not sure. They might have told me, but I don't remember again. You know, I think, you know, by the time I came to and then the Australian medical team were there, I'd say that's probably when they started loading me up on the opioids or on the morphine. So yes, yes. Um, it gets probably a little bit hazy then. Yeah. I guess probably even, you know, back in rural North Shore that, you know, the boys had said they'd come and visit me and mm. I had the little PDA, the, the little pain dispenser in my hand. You could just sort of press it and go for a little hit of morphine. Yeah. And that's how they measure how much pain you're in by how often you're going for the little hit. So I'd be there talking to them and then I'd just sort of be there and I'd smile at them and then drop down to sleep or Mm. I'd be there just giggling at them. (laughs) Well, that's good. I remember remember one time like I I just felt like I was on a shopping trolley coming down the hill. I was just going, (laughs) wee! Thank God for morphine in those moments. Thank God for, yeah, high as a kite. Yeah, thank God. That probably... um, kept you a bit more sane than you realise. Indeed. Yeah. And, but, yeah, go on. I was just going to touch on the boy, you know, losing the boys. Um, as tough as it was, I guess, gave us a special bond or galvanised us mm. in a way that a lot of our memories and a lot of our connections are there for those boys. Mm. So, for me, I got a second chance at life those boys didn't get. So. Yeah. That ended up, I guess, being some of the values or some of what drove me forward. Yeah. There were dark times. There were times when I wallowed in self-pity and, you know, why me? This isn't fair. You know, why did this happen? have to happen to me? I didn't hurt anyone. I didn't do anything to them. Why did they want to hurt me? Why do they want to kill me? Yeah. And it's hard. It's hard. You know, you go through dark times and you go, how am I going to get out of this? You question the value of your life or your existence. Mm. And it got to the stage, Little Moo, where I was in a low place. Um, remember being at home and seeing a lot of healing time. Burns take a while to get over, and I was sitting at home just in our lounge room. We were living on a farm at the time, and yeah. there was a little space out the back, and there were these little birds, these squawkers. They were really loud, and I was sitting there with a gun. And every time they'd sort of come near the house, I'd take a little pot shot or shoot one of them from a little chair in the lounge room. But I remember. Uh, Abu Bakr Bashir, I guess the supposed mastermind of the Bali bombings, came on TV one time and was smiling. And I remember pointing the gun at the TV and I was just filled with hatred and intense desire to just, I don't know, revenge, seek retribution. And pointing the gun at the TV and just 
I was just so angry that he was smiling and all the people over there that died and Crowy, Sando and Rids had their lives ended because of this guy. So they were the dark times. But as I've grown, as I've come to realize that hatred is an emotion that if you allow it to consume you, it will swallow you up and eat you up from the inside out. Mm. It's a corrosive emotion and it doesn't serve you well. So, How did you get past your hate? It took me a long time, little Moo. I guess in my recovery, I think it might have been Maddie who gave me a book, a guy by the name of W. Mitchell. It's called It's Not What Happens to You, It's What You Do About It. Mm. In essence, this guy was, again, in probably in the prime of his life, riding along on the motorbike in the 60s, and a truck turned in front of him. He came off and knocked off the petrol cap. Petrol went all over him, and it burned him. So it burned about 70% of his body. And back in those days, those sort of burns was a death sentence. No one sort of survived that amount. Yeah. He did. He tells a story when he's hospital waking up and the nurses were undoing his bandages and talked about it on his hands. And she just kept undoing the bandage and further and further mm-hmm. till he realized he had no fingers left. All his face was burnt. Again, the physio for that is just horrific. So mm. with the burns, all the skin starts to scar and contract. Okay. So you've got to do all this physio to keep stretching it and try and, I guess, stop you from ending up like a little shriveled prune or mm. keep that range of motion and flexibility. He tells the story getting through that and it was, it's an absolutely amazing story. But again, he goes to some dark places and he tells about when when he was recovering again, his face was burning. He was walking past the school and, you know, the kids ran out in the playground and were yelling, monster, monster. Yeah. So just this horrible story. And then he, he started to get better and find a way forward. And he used to be a pilot before his motorbike accident and he wanted to learn to fly again. And they said, no, you can't do that. You've got no fingers, no hands. You won't better do that. So he had all these dolls adapted and built for him. He learned to fly again. Mm-hmm. A couple of months later, he went up one morning, icy morning, ice on the wings, a couple of hundred feet in the air, the plane came down. He's ended up a quadriplegic. He's ended up in a wheelchair. So, yeah, not just one but two catastrophic life events. Yes. And this guy just found a way to get through it. Again, you know, he went through dark times, wanted to give up, but found a way forward. His story, I found, was nothing short of inspirational and I guess put it in perspective or proportion, I go, I'm not having a go. This guy's been through far worse than I have, and he's living this most amazing life. Mm. I need to start having a go. And that's when I guess I changed my mindset from selfishness or that self-pity and why me to going, I've got a chance at life that three of my friends didn't get. Yeah. I owe it to them. I owe it to others to live my best life, to become the best version of myself and to go forward and just embrace life. So that was, I guess, a change for me. That was, hey, I need to do something with my life. And that was when, I guess, my mindset really shifted. Was that a dissipation of anger that you felt? And then what came after that? Was it a feeling of compassion or was there something about you that softened over time it it didn't happen overnight it was a gradual thing at first and I guess the first thing I thought was I'm being selfish here again 
I've got a chance that three of my mates didn't get. I need to do something. So mm-hmm. that was a catalyst for change in my life. I thought about what I'm going to do. You know, burns take a while to recover. So I thought, I'm, mum always wanted me to go to uni. So I thought, right, I'll go and do something of that. We had a family business. I was always pretty good with numbers, so thought I'll go and do accounting. That'll stand me in good stead. So <laughs> that makes one of us terrible at numbers over here. <laughs> <laughs> and if anyone knew me before, they're going, "You're doing what?" <laughs> <laughs> so off I went to uni, started uh, doing accounting, got through my degree, ended up out at the mines, got headhunted with Rio Tino, went out there, and then. I was traveling an hour in the country and that wasn't my passion. So small business was in my blood. It was something I wanted to do. So mm-hmm. that's where I ended up, ended up in Orange as an accountant. But really, I guess part of that journey was me wanting to be better, but also learning to let go of that hate and learning to embrace love. And I guess I just wanted to be passionate about life and embrace what I've been given. Mm. So, Hearing you talk, it's this might sound silly, but it's very strange to hear, you know, a Billy Country bloke express his embrace of love. I think growing up in the country, we don't talk about that a lot, as we sort of mentioned earlier. So that's just such a beautiful thing to take away from that, your embrace of love. What has your embrace of love given you? Uh, A richness in life that I didn't know before. Mm. I guess passion in my relationships that gives and brings joy to those in my life, the special people in my life. Yeah. So I guess that passion and love I want to endure no matter what life offers or puts in front of me. Mm. What it does for me is magnifies that human emotion, you know, that joy and love and abound and mm. and I, I guess sharing a richness in life that's beyond compare, that's, that's one of my goals in life. Yeah. And do you feel grateful that your, I guess your family would feel grateful that your story has been, it's resolved because I think, And I don't know if I'm remembering this correctly because I was little. I was like 14. But I think uh, we didn't find all the remains of the boys. And sorry, is that too much? No. No, and I I think that's right, little Moo. Like I I don't remember that time exactly again, you know, through through the heaviness of the medication and what they were doing. But I remember I was down in North Shore and they're having a service for Sino and I wanted to get out of hospital. I wanted to get back and get to that. So, again, I felt like I sort of didn't have that contact or I wanted to go and say goodbye to the boys. So I got them to drag my sorry ass out of the hospital into a wheelchair, into a car and trip home out to Forbes and straight to Sando's sort of memorial or Sando's service. And- yeah. I remember that service. It was at the in the Red Bend gym and it was mm-hmm. – yeah, it was very hard. And that was, uh, remember, the the gym was so packed that people had to sit outside on the oval, I think. Yep. And it um, was huge. Again, that was the Forbes community coming together mm, in that time of need and that time of crisis. Yes. I have a bit of a fond memory of Sando. He was in our cricket team, just 
remember him sitting at the bar with Moo with his big schooner of old and yeah. he was always the quiet, gentle giant, just a beautiful disposition, a beautiful man. He was just a lovely, lovely guy. Yes. He was a very close friend of Matt's, my brother's, and I remember he would stay over at our place a lot because obviously he was out on the farm and we lived above the pub, the prime spot, and I, I know Matt would have challenged him and I don't think he could hold his booze very well. Um, <laughs> and I remember on Saturday mornings after he and Matt had been out on the town and he, and Sando had vomited all over our spare bedroom, I would make him Vegemite on toast with a cup of tea and he'd just sit there and watch Saturday morning telly with me and he, <laughs> he was just the most gentle and loving man to my sister and I and I just have such fond memories of him and I don't mean to digress into the memory vaults but I think it's important to talk about and say the names of the people that we love and have lost so it it really is and it's a beautiful thing to do we probably don't do it enough you know life gets busy life moves on but I find reflecting again talking about that brings back it just makes me smile, you know, thinking about my memories and my recollections of Sando. Mm. Um, yeah, it's just beautiful. Yeah. And do you remember the the media frenzy? Oh, I do. It was, yeah, it was huge, mm. huge. Um, yeah, everyone wanted a story or wanted a piece of it and, yeah. you know, we're sort of turning them away. As it turned out, there was... One guy we sort of bonded with, he liked he liked his schooners of Recious and his Winfield Red or something. But he was just a good guy, a relatable guy, and he managed to find a way in or broke down some of those barriers. And he wrote a story, I can't remember, it was in the Herald or the Australian or something, but he captured a bit of that raw emotion at the time and how we were trying to channel, I guess, some of our energies back into the footy the next year and what that meant for us. But it was quite a well-written story or article at the time but you know they were everywhere and we probably did our best to I guess shy away from it I gave a few interviews a few recants but at the time I probably didn't delve into the story the same way we just have then Mm. it was very very different time back then well it was raw and and you had not recovered no 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 you're probably still on a lot of anger. Yep, it really was. So, again, you know, looking at that journey, you go through those stages of grief and anger. And remember, at first, it was great. There were people around, support was great. And, you know, I felt nurtured and loved. But after a while, people go back to their lives. And, you know, with my time recovering, I remember sitting out at the farm, out at home, with a, obviously a lot of thinking time to reflect and, that's where I think low energy, no action leads to frustrations and decline, that sort of thing. So I guess that's definitely one of them. You know, we generate our fears while we sit there. We overcome them by action. So it took me a long time to get to there. Ooh, just got chills. It really, you know, momentum's everything. So moving in the right direction, happy people get happier, sad people get sadder. You can wallow down and spiral down very easily so it's finding a way to I guess to try and shift that mindset one from where I was focusing on what had been taken away from me Mm. to what I still had what I still had was everything so I still had the love of my family Janelle's support she thanks Nelly 
She was amazing through everything. She was my rock. She gave me so much time, you know, unwavering support and kindness and love through it all. I do remember that Nellie and the girlfriends just rallied. Yep. Yeah. And so they, they were actually, a group of them were actually down in Sydney when the bombings happened. Mm. They were down there and then, you know, you could imagine how frantic they would have been oh. trying to get information, trying to work out what had happened. And then, you know, Nellie was down there with Christy and Christy was going out with Crowey at the time. Yeah. Obviously, when the news broke, Christy would have found out that Crowey was gone. I could only imagine the heartbreak and how horrible that would have been for her and mm. the struggle she would have went through. And to this day, I still, every time I see her, I give her a big hug and tell her how much I love her. Yeah. She's just a great person. Just that unbroken bond. I wonder who else was in your support crew because obviously Nellie was in there and the mum. For me, Howie and Randall came out a bit. Yeah. I think even Big Heavy D, Dolby Sly came out. You know, there were just different people coming, you know, and I can't remember them all. But for me, I found bonding with the boys or catching up with the boys was really warming or it's where I wanted to be. You know, I could tell that story. So, you know, they tried me to go and get sea shrinks and sea sykes. Mm. all the time and I saw one but I didn't feel like I had a bond or I was telling them a story that they couldn't relate to or even have empathy for. Yeah. Hey, everyone can have sympathy for it but for them to understand what it was like, I felt like the only ones I could bond with was the boys that came back. So I guess those boys I'm eternally grateful for and every year, every Bali Day, the anniversary, we go and meet out the Forbes Cemetery at sunrise and we go and um, say good day to the boys. We go and visit the graves of the three boys, mm. have a little moment with them. We go and have some brekkie and then we end up going having nine holes of golf, a few beers, count lunch, a few more beers. <laughs> a bloody delightful remembrance day, if you ask me. It is indeed. <laughs> it is indeed. One of the things that I've wondered over this, I, I realise now it's been 20 years, whoa, and everybody deals with trauma in different ways. And as we've talked about, somehow you've managed to move forward with your life in positive ways. There's got to be something else that helps you move forward. And I guess the reason I'm curious about this is because that's not been the case for everyone who came home from Bali and on the team. And mm. I don't think that my brother ever fully came home to us. He's just never been the same. And part of my heart aches for him because I, I don't think he was ever able to come home fully. And, I yeah, I just wonder if you have noticed or realised that there's a difference in personalities in being able to deal with that. I think there definitely is. Everyone deals with it in their own way and you never know how you will respond until you're in that moment, till you're thrust in that situation. Yeah. But I would certainly agree with you, Maddie. Um, I love him. To he was the life of the party. You could go into any room and he would light it up and people would always remember him or, hey, remember the acapella <laughs> acoustic guy over there. He'd, he'd always make people smile and laugh and was just so warm and giving. And I do think that a part of him was left or died there in Bali. Yeah. He definitely didn't have that same vibrancy 
it became, I guess, more intrinsic and, mm. you know, you'd see less and less of that in Maddie and then he stopped wanting to go into that social situation and I remember, you know, we try and drag him, kicking and screaming into that and you keep asking and then you get to that stage where you stop asking. and Yeah, you just couldn't cope. Yeah, definitely. And, he, you know, again, you know, without going to Maddie's story or that's his to tell, but mm. he had some other challenges, you know, down in Sydney where a pub he was managing was held up and, you know, he had a gun put to him. Yeah. And again, being the person he was, you know, the gun was trained on some of the, the staff or the, the clientele of the pub and Maddie said, no, no, I'm the manager, you put it on me. So mm-hmm. that is the character of the man and just putting others before himself always. But Yeah. Very good in a, and I share this the same as, as Matt, we tend to be really, really good in an immediate crisis and we somehow are the strongest person on the day and we could handle it in the moment and then it's that aftershock that catches up with us later. Yes. Yeah. And and that's what it is. It's almost that ripple effect or you get that latent effect come through going, hey, the adrenaline's worn off and then you start to process or maybe it's too much time. So mm-hmm. it's that sitting around too much thinking time, no energy. That's when it leads to that decline. Mm-hmm. So I guess probably for me, I would say there's probably three decisions that can change your life. Firstly, going, what am I going to focus on? I guess, you know, focus equals feeling and what you focus on is what you feel. So what is the story or what are you going to focus on? Is it what I've lost or what I still have? And if you focus on what you have, you'll have gratitude and a better outlook on life and mind. If you focus on what you've lost, you'll have that self-pity and that spiral down into sadness, into depression, into darkness. So that's a challenge and that's something, you know, I think everyone should ask them going, what am I going to focus on? Yeah, and it's individual. It's very individual, isn't it? It it really is. So then you say, what does this mean? You know, am I being challenged or punished? Is this beginning of the end? Really, the story you tell yourself is what you believe. So if you tell yourself you're being punished, that's what you're going to believe. So story you tell yourself equals meaning, meaning equals emotion, mm. and emotion equals life. The quality of your life is governed by your emotions. So if you can get through that or find a way to answer those questions and really, I guess, psychoanalyze or be critical of yourself going, hey, what does this mean for me? And then lastly going, what am I going to do about it? Hey, what are the patterns of your life that either bring you up or bring you down? Mm. Hey, I'll make it sound really easy or... In my mind, that's where I've gotten to or that's how I deal with it. But, again, everyone's got their own challenges, their own cross to bear and their own struggles to endure. And I guess the thing is too, and my beautiful listeners who listen to this podcast understand that the journey is through. And you're able to talk about this now because you've been through the hard shit and you walk through the dark tunnel. And, yeah. That's okay. That's welcome here. <laughs> we like it, it. It definitely is. Yep. We like a recovered soul, and it's it's also just come as you are. <laughs> I've been there. I've been, to, and and it's not to say I'm on this permanent high where I'm just yeah, you know, life is great. There are times when I dive back down, and mm. I do. And whenever I find my energy is low, I make those lousy decisions or those bad thought patterns start to creep back into my head. Yeah. That's where I've got to find myself and find a way to get momentum. So I've sort of developed some, in my own mind, some sort of towards values and rules going, hey, anytime I am loving, anytime I'm more towards others, anytime I smile or get someone to smile back at me, 
I experience love, health, and happiness. And then I've got some away sort of values or rules going. Only if I were to be consistently react in the moment with harshness and or intensity instead of remembering that I have the power to decide what things mean to me. I guess, you know, whenever I get in the situation going, hey, there's an illusion that I can't do anything about it, I've got to remember that I am resourceful, I'm committed, I'm determined, and if it's meant to be, I can make anything happen. Whenever I believe I'm a victim, instead of remembering how fortunate I am that my life is blessed, and that that's the moment I decide to notice it and, I guess, be grateful, that's when I catch, so they're my away from values and I've got my towards values. So they're some of the things that guide me or help me on a better trajectory. I wonder in your in your experience of your trauma, if you noticed or had experienced the people around you and in your life and how, did, was there a, um, I don't know what you call it, but it's trauma to those around you. I know with, with our family and our experience with, with Maddie, and I can really only actually talk about my own personal experience because I can't speak for everyone else, but I was severely traumatised and still am to this day really of what happened to all of you, what happened to him and the aftermath of that. Did you see that in your world? I did, little move, but probably only upon reflection. Again, at the time I was caught up with me and focused on me, but having time to look back, you can definitely see that. You can definitely see the impacts on others and their highs and lows. And it's tough trying to always be strong and always be upbeat for someone. They've got their own issues to bear. They've got their own feelings. So, Mm. you know, life's not about me. It's about we. It's about the people you share it with. And there's so much more joy when you share it. But conversely, there's so much more despair and downside when that person is in that side. So I guess you become a product of your environment or you're influenced by that. Mm. So I definitely did. And selfishly, I wasn't aware of that at the time and probably didn't really acknowledge. So to this day, to all the people around me, to Nelly, to my mum, to my family, to my friends, just thank you so much for your love and support through all those dark times and what you did for me. It's just amazing. I don't think anyone would consider you selfish, though. I think that's that's not even a word that would have crossed anyone's mind. Even now, today on reflection, I think I have such great capacity or compassion for people that have gone through something so traumatizing and have been able to survive it. But yeah, mm. I, I, it's interesting to know. I wonder how Nelly dealt with every day. I wonder how your mum sort of got up in the morning and and kept forging ahead, especially when you weren't home, when you weren't in Australia, in the country for that considerable period when you were in the hospital. I wonder how they dealt with that. Uh, they were panicked, yeah. They were booking planes to go to WA where I was first, well, to Bali first, then to WA, then to Darwin, and then it all turned around pretty quickly. So, mm-hmm. you know, fortunately, I got home pretty quickly, but I could only imagine that feeling of helplessness and, you know, they're going, what can I do or how do I be there for someone, you know, when I'm so far away? So mm. I guess that that feeling and then even going through it all, you know, it does impact on them. It impacts on others. So I guess that's one thing to share is go and be mindful of those in your support group or 
try and see them and think about how it impacts them rather than just what it what it means for you so mm. all pain and suffering starts with the illusion of loss the secret of life is giving so mm. again my give or my message is to go out there and give love to share that and to try and bring that radiate that beautiful aspect of life that we don't always celebrate or recognize so mm. trading our expectations for appreciation and I guess as someone who was the person on the other side of the trauma, so a family member of, of someone who had gone through extreme trauma, I remember when the Australian government flew over to collect all the Aussies and all the families, all of us, all of our families, had to be taken into this special hangar or, or it was an area at, at Sydney Airport to meet the boys. I remember you weren't there because obviously you were on your own journey. So this was everyone else, that all the other boys that were collected and brought back to Sydney. And, and when they got off the plane and they, they came into this special area down the stairs away from all the media, it was so full on, the silence in the room. There was a lot of people in the room and there was a lot of people in the room for there to be silence. And I remember when I saw Matt for the first time, I didn't know what to do. And my sister and my mum and my dad were hugging him and I just stood there staring at him and I, I didn't know what to do. Like this this was a person that was my hero. It was my hero mm. from when I was born and he was he was hurting. And I remember that dad had to touch me on the arm and say, go and hug your brother. You, so I had to get given that permission to hug him. And just that complete shock was was with all of us. It was a real process, I guess, is what I'm trying to trying to convey i guess i don't really i don't really know how to explain how it. to say that yep mm. it, it's really tough and everyone deals with the processes that sort of thing in their own way and like i said you don't know how you react how you respond until you put into that situation mm. but just be there just go and say whatever it is the first thing it might not necessarily be right but go and connect go and be there for them over time it'll sort itself out but just commit to being there for them whenever possible. Okay, so that's good. So my little weird shockedness was okay as long as I was there. <laughs> that it, it, it is, and it, yeah. it really is, and they're the same by the same token. No one, no one knows how to deal with it from that way or how to respond. They're going, "What do you do? Come up all jovial? Hey, great to see you!" Or so, so what's good? <laughs> <laughs> We're all just muddling through, aren't we? Yep. Yeah. Yep. It it takes time to to find. You know your path where you belong in life and how you fit in there and what is your natural state but just be yourself mm. go and be you amen to that do you feel that the experience has made you a better dad nothing nothing sure you know um i guess one of my primary goals in life is to create an environment where we can raise loving passionate happy children who thrive that's what i want for them you know i want to be there for them and even looking at my childhood and my relationship with my dad back in those days, dads were children and to be seen, not heard. Yeah. Um, or, you know, I'd get a packet of chips and a raspberry and be wandering around a beer garden in a pub somewhere. <laughs> a raspberry drink. What do we call it? A fire engine. A fire engine. <laughs> a, fire, <laughs> a Shirley Temple. Uh, we yeah. used to love those. And my a auntie used lemonade. to let us treat the West Coast coolers as well. Oh, that was getting there. That was getting there. <laughs> Okay, so it has made you a better dad. 
It has, yeah, I'd like to think so. My kids will probably tell you different. (laughs) (laughs) I will hear for them part two. (laughs) Yeah, done. Okay, so let's move into the next, first of all, halfway check. Are you okay? I'm all good, good? Lou. Okay, great. Am I babbling on too much? No, it's fucking amazing. I'm going to definitely cry after this secretly (laughs) in the bathroom for hours. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about the next phase of the healing journey, which was the Rugby Union Premiership, mm-hmm. which was six months after Bali, I think, is when you started training for the season. It must have been around, yeah, so probably would probably would have even been three or four months. So is, Bali happened in October. Yeah. And footy season or footy training probably kicks off traditionally around late Jan into Feb. Okay, wow, that was... Um, so, it, that was not a lot of time between the like the trauma and then training again. And I wonder how important was it for you all to be back together as a team that soon? I guess it, I guess probably I missed a lot of that. Like I, I was in my burn suit. I was still getting physio, so right. there was no training for me, or I didn't see any of that part of it. Mm. As soon as I was able or could. I wanted to be involved. I wanted to be back in that environment. So yeah. I became the water boy of the team, <laughs> uh, the Bobby Boucher of the team, <laughs> Bobby running Boucher. out the H2O. <laughs> I remember seeing you on the sidelines with your, with your sunnies on and you you had this look oh, about were, you. They were the worst sunglasses in the world. We all had them though. Were they the Oakleys? Classic. Oh, I don't know what they were. They were terrible. I don't know what the country folk were thinking. We were such idiots with our Oakley sunglasses <laughs> and our bloody billabong board shorts. Oh, yeah. It's very country chic. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you missed the sort of first part of training, but I, you were there I for did, some but, of it, weren't you? Yeah, definitely getting into that team environment and being around it. Mm was I guess so rewarding and then seeing what we we're doing. So that year we had some special footy jumpers made up that had the boys normal numbers or what they played in. So it was one, two and eight. Yeah. And it had the words, you know, never forgotten um emblazoned on there. So everyone was incredibly proud to pull on that jumper in that time, in that year. Mm-hmm. And to again, you had know, to represent the boys or to carry them on the field every time again. It was something they never got the chance to go and do again. So yeah, it it was incredibly special. Yeah. What was it like for you to sit on the sidelines and watch because you couldn't play in the grand final? And did you find another way to channel your emotions? I I guess I tried as best I can. Um, you know, not being able to play, I was still in that that what about me? This isn't fair. That selfish mindset. Yeah. yeah. Going, this has been taken away from me. So, yeah, I still harboured that resentment or I still wasn't at ease or at peace with that at that time. But I still wanted to be around the other boys and it was building into something special that culminated in us making the finals and then going on and beating Emus over at Emus for the first time, um, hosting the grand final. We ended up playing Doggies in the grand final. And we ended up rolling them and it was so we we'd won second grade before and then we went out and won first grade. So for a small town to go and win two grades was unheard of. 
And then in those circumstances, it was just like it was meant to be. It was the most beautiful thing, you know, at Forbes. The Oval was packed with the Forbes community. Again, the media was there. It was a buzz. It was just, it was surreal. It was just like it was meant. You couldn't have scripted it any better. And for it to happen, for it to come off was just, was just awesome for the town. Was awesome. It was almost part of the healing process, I guess, happened then. But it was so special. And then. Yeah, you know, I remember Hottie giving the speech and looking up and looking up at the heavens and this is for you boys. It was just, it was beautiful. I remember that the vibe in the town, even, you know, a month beforehand, that it was just electric. And I think what we experienced was human spirit at its absolute peak. It was just the level of love that flowed through the town of Forbes at that time And pain, like there's obviously there was just a continuous amount of pain and it was really tough for everyone. But that feeling that has stayed with me forever is that that electricity that ran through the town on on the day of the grand final, obviously, I mean, you can't explain. It was was visceral what happened. It really was, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I I think it was a channel, again, you know, those emotions were still raw. There was a lot of, there's still a lot of pain there. Yeah. And finding a way to maybe channel those emotions and try and turn it around, going, "Hey, if we can do this, we can win this. It would be so amazing." And I, I do remember every shop front was just decked out. I remember the Posty Hotel had the little "Go, Maddie, Go, Maddie, and the boys." <laughs> that would have been that would have been Lenny putting that up there. Go, Maddie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That was yeah. Uh, but it was it was it was powerful. You could feel it. It was just there. It was like you said. It was visceral. It was mm-hmm. just amazing and it was just so so much excitement so much buzz and there were people just getting on our bandwagon just knowing the story and getting on and neighboring was, was towns. so cool yeah i think maybe the neighboring towns got involved as well you know even though have i lost your little moo oh can you hear me hello um, hello little moo sorry. where'd you go little moo hang on Oh, there we go. Can you hear me? Yo, yo. So sorry. I don't know what happened there. I think it was my internet. Pay your bills. Oh, I know. It's bloody dad. <laughs> he's out there watching yeah. He's out there watching Netflix and I've t- Oh, God. <laughs> I've, yeah, screaming. Yeah, I've confined Scream. him to the living room. So that's already hard enough and he can't make any noise. <laughs> so he'd be watching the Netflix and I specifically said, Dad, I need the internet. <laughs> Bloody Mick. <laughs> so sorry, that um that interrupted our flow a bit. So was there ever a feeling during the grand final that the other team kind of let you guys have it? Or did they truly make you work for it? They truly made us work for it. I remember a time there where it was intensely close at the end and we were running into a big headwind and it was just going against us and it just Felt like, you know, I didn't want to be, I don't know, robbed at that time or I just wanted it so much and driving forward. So looking back at that Doggies team at that time, yeah, that was an amazing team. They had country players, representative players littered through there in their own rights. You know, they're a great side and they wanted it. They no way let us have it. So it was just pure passion and determination and, you know, will to go on for the boys. So I just remember them taking hit up after hit up, you know, Steps Moxie, you know, he'd already played a full game of second grade and he was out there just punching it up, you know, <laughs> using one of his one of his 16 steps that he's got in his kit bag. Yeah. 
Oh, also for anyone out there who doesn't understand the rules of football, aka me, uh, even after sitting on the sidelines for most of my childhood watching. So second grade means that they played before the first grade team. So the the team that was over in Bali, which is your team, was first graders. So the most senior. Yeah, I think I think it was everyone. We're we're a club, so we tried not to have that separation or that oh, distinction. So okay. again, one of the things I loved about Falls Rugby is no one thought they were above anyone. So we were a unit, we're a team. So one in, all in. Mm, okay. But for those of you that don't understand football, I'm just wondering why when you get the ball over the line, they call it a try. Why isn't it called a succeed? Why isn't it called a succeed? <laughs> oh my gosh! We should change the rules now. We should change the name. Yep. <laughs> Bloody semantics. Bloody semantics. And maybe you should look into motivational speaking. I feel like that could be part of your calling. <laughs> <laughs> and so after the big win, and there was obviously that Mad Monday celebration after the premiership, and there was a big, I would imagine it went on for a week. <laughs> I wonder if there was a bit of a thud coming back down to reality or to the, the daily grind of life after that win. Um, I don't think so for me. I guess I was still probably not working or I didn't have a normal daily life. So for me, that was exciting. That was great to go out there and do that sort of stuff. Yeah. Some of the other boys might think differently. For me, it was just a sense of relief and just like the stars had aligned for whatever reason, it just happened and it was just beautiful. And I still hold on to that and still treasure that to this day. Yeah, what a beautiful reconciliation moment to have that win mm. and to have that celebration after the, the incident. Yep. Is there anything that you'd like to share about your experience that might not be known or something about going through this level of trauma that, can only be known once you've gone through it. What is something that you can teach us? I don't know what I'd say to teach you. I guess everyone goes on their own life journey and their own struggles. Mm. Everyone's got their own cross to bear. And just because I've got scars on the outside or mine are tangible doesn't mean people aren't feeling pain in their lives or aren't battling with their own issues. So I guess what I would say is it's how you view it. So it's almost a difference between fear and faith. So both of them are imagined. I guess fear, bad outcomes, we'll realize it's it's imagined, it's in your head. Yeah. Faith is you focus on what you can control and that outcomes you can achieve will be better. Mm-hmm. You've got that certainty and belief in the future. So I guess they're both imagined. What I would say to you is folk, focus on the here and now and the future. You can't change the past. But what you can change is how you react to it. It's not what happens to you, it's what you do about it. You can't control the direction of the winds, but you can adjust your sails to make the best of what's in front of you. So that's what I would say. You know, it's not easy and it's hard. You know, when you're in that moment, you go, how do I find my way forward? What's this mean for me? But I guess progress makes you happy. Progress brings you that energy. So just got to get up and find a way forward, Mm. find a way to drive forward. Momentum is everything. Momentum is everything. Let's get that printed on a T-shirt for you. Oh, yeah. Bam. And just the last sort of question, which we may have already covered, but 
Did anything about surviving Bali change you fundamental about who you are as a human? I think it's definitely made me a more compassionate and more loving human. So, yeah, we touched on at the start of the podcast around that love, mm. that feeling, that emotion. Love is the oxygen of the soul. I just want to share love. I want to exude love. I just want to be loved. So if you could define one emotion, that would be it. And it's it's a beautiful thing. If you can share joy, if you can bring love into someone else's life, it's a great thing to do. So I guess having been there, having seen that dark side, that's what I want to try and do and try and radiate that. So, you know, go, go and be the rainbow on someone else's dark, stormy clouds. Yes. Um, and I suppose tell yeah. the people you love that you want them. Yes, and we don't do that nearly enough until it's something I realise. So you know, I lost my mum a few years ago and you know, suddenly and didn't get the chance to, to go and say those unsaid things or to tell her enough how much I love her. So tomorrow isn't given to us. Tomorrow isn't a certainty. You know, it's a gift. And then every day is a gift. So tell those around you that you love them and then, you know, how much they mean to you. So I recently heard someone talk about a funeral and they were there that that person committed suicide, Mm -hmm. aka your first podcast, I believe. And they were telling the story going, if only that person could know how much love for them was in that room, how much they were respected and cherished and they just wanted to share that with them. And we don't do that enough. We don't do that openly. So whether that's that Aussie thing, whether it's a blokey thing, mm. but we've got this, you know, we hold it inside. So it's a I guess, you know, I just want to share open, yep, share openly and lovingly and tell people. Mm. Well, I love you and I'm so grateful that you've come on the show. Thank you. Right, right back at your little move. <laughs> well, that's, that's a wrap. My friend. That's a wrap. I think we've nailed it. Awesome. Yes. Thank you. No, pleasure. Good boy, good boy. Oh, hi, friends. Thanks for listening to my episode with Adrian. Feels weird calling him that. So, Acho it is, okay? Acho is such an amazing human and an incredible example of what it looks like when a person owns their own story and turns the shit into something powerful. So I have to say a big thank you to Acho for being brave and so vulnerable and recovered enough to tell his story because going back into the depths of that time is not an easy thing to do. So big love to you, my brother. (laughs) We touched a little bit on the aftershock of trauma of what happens to family members and partners and friends of people who have been through something so horrific and I tried my best to talk it through in the moment but I fumbled because I felt weird talking about my own trauma about the experience when it didn't physically happen to me but the reality is I experienced the trauma via my brother and the downward spiral that happened for him when he came home had massive ramifications for me and for our whole family and it makes up part of our family story. It's not good and it's not bad. It just is and that's okay. And it's taken me a long time to be okay with this. Witnessing and 
being part of that level of communal trauma was huge for me. And I was only 14 years old at the time. My sister and I were literal kids and we had to grow up very fast in our house. It was a very grown-up environment and a very grown-up situation. We lived through some pretty intense and volatile circumstances off the back of this tragedy. And, yeah, I guess part of my journey into adulthood has been to work through it. And now it's empowered me. It's made me more resilient, more compassionate and kinder as a human. And to be honest, part of me would give anything to go back to that time to relive those memories, which is probably a weird thing to say. And my therapist is going to have a very stern word to me after she hears this. But I just want to go back and see if I can make it better or be more present, to be near everyone. And as painful as it was, I have never experienced friendship and community togetherness like it. And yep, it didn't take me long after the event before I went off the rails, as we like to call it here in Australia. Other people might know it as uh, a mental breakdown. (laughs) I was drinking alcohol heavily, taking lots of drugs, um, all of that normal I guess it's normal, teenage stuff. But I was suicidal and self-harming quite severely, actually. And I thought I was hiding it well, but I think some friends of mine told the school. And I remember one teacher pulled me out of class and offered me four chocolate biscuits, mint slices, by the way, yum, (laughs) to tell her what was going on with me. Oh, lol. I mean... Bless her for trying, but imagine if you were me and someone offered you some biscuits to feel better in the middle of a serious breakdown. Oh, it was wild. I mean, I ate the biscuits, duh, but I told her nothing. The moral of the story is I have forgotten what the moral of the story is, Um, but I guess... It's just to remind myself, my younger self, that she did her best at the time and that was okay. And I wonder if you're punishing yourself for past hurts and past experiences and how can we help ourselves recover from these big life-altering events on our journeys? What tools have you got in your life skills toolbox to help you get through? Do you actually have any? If you don't, maybe it's time to start stocking up. What are some things that make you feel safe and secure in your world? And how can you bring more of that energy into your everyday life? So if a tragedy does happen, you have a life raft. And just like Acho said, you can push yourself into positive forward momentum. I'd like to dedicate this episode to all the Forbes Rugby Union players that were over in Bali to Acho, and to my big brother Matthew. What you endured was horrific, and 20 years on, my heart is still right there with you. And to the three boys who didn't make it home, but will never be forgotten. Player one, Greg Sanderson, Sando or Frog. Player two, Paul Cronin. 
Crowey. Player eight, Brad Ridley, Rids. And if you'd like to watch a quick but wonderful documentary on Atro's journey, which my brother and the community of Forbes are all majorly part of, you can watch it for free on YouTube. It's called The Longest Season, and it's actually a little bit tricky to find, so I will link it in the show notes for you. (sighs) We've come to the end of another episode, and... I've been forgetting to ask people to subscribe to the podcast and also write reviews. Look, I just can't get this shit right. So if you're inspired by or frothing on the show, just tell your friends, press all the like buttons, share it far and wide. And if you have a TMI story that you would like to share with me and the rest of the world, head over to planetsarahgrant.com and shoot me a little email. It'll be fun, I promise. That was good. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. (laughs) Good for you. TMI? For real. real.